When Laurel Alterman opened up her medical marijuana dispensary in Colorado in 2009, she expected she'd make some money, maybe help some people. She couldn't have imagined how it would change the rest of her life. I loved my patients. I loved the people that came in. I felt that I was doing a good thing. And we were good people doing a good thing. And uh, so, yeah, I regret it now. The business was doing well. It made about $600,000 in its best year. But it had also drawn the attention of the IRS. They said Laurel owed them nearly half a million dollars based on an obscure part of the U.S. tax code that applies to drug dealers. I'm probably the only person you'll ever meet that didn't make any money on this business. Well, I think they're going to meet some more. (laughs) Laurel and her husband got caught up in the tax no-man's land that exists for people running businesses that the feds don't consider legal. And 10 years after their company opened its doors, they're still paying the price. I'm Diana Novak-Jones, and this is Law 360's Legalization, a podcast series that explores some of the murky legal scenarios playing out for cannabis businesses operating across the country. Before we get into Laurel's story, I want to tell you why we're taking such a close look at cannabis. Marijuana and its derivatives have been legalized in some shape or form in more than 40 states. But it's still illegal at the federal level. There really is no other industry like this. Cannabis is the only one that's caught between state legalization and federal prohibition. And it's a big industry. Legal sales are projected to reach $45 billion in the next five years. Lots of issues come up when you talk about something with this weird kind of semi-legality. People remain imprisoned for marijuana convictions, while 14 states and territories have fully legalized it. While the feds aren't going around raiding dispensaries, that's a fear some in the industry still have. With this podcast, we're drilling down on five key issues facing marijuana companies and their lawyers. We're focused on the struggle to find banking, the gaps in protecting cannabis intellectual property, the regulatory maze that can easily trip up businesses, and we'll address the risks lawyers face when they take on cannabis clients. But we're going to start with what basically everyone we talked to said was their biggest hurdle, taxes. Laurel's problems come from 280E, a clause in the tax code that pertains to businesses dealing in illegal drugs. We'll talk about what it meant for her and what it means now, after several court battles over whether it can apply to cannabis businesses. Hi. Hi, Laura. Hey. Hey. This is Cora. Hi, Cora. Yeah. Hey there, baby. She's so cute. I'm Come Diana. Up. So good to meet you in great, person. Great to meet you, Diana. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Laurel is in her mid-70s now. She lives in a sunny town home with her husband, Bill Gibson. But her fight with the IRS makes them uncertain they'll be able to stay there. She's a native New Yorker, but she moved to Colorado decades ago. She used to have a music shop, and people like John Prine and John Denver hung out there. 
Taj Mahal would sift through records while doing his laundry. By the time Colorado legalized medical marijuana, Laurel was close to retirement, but her son suggested they open a dispensary. So she did, in a town called Louisville, about a half hour north of Denver. They called it Alter Meds. I've been using marijuana since 1965, you know, a long time, my whole life. And I've managed to uh, be successful in my business to, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sitting on a street corner in rags, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, I can't imagine you had all those famous musicians coming through and not using oh, that, marijuana. <laughs> well, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, back in New York, we were, yeah. you know, smoking dope. Forever. So it's part of my life. It's just a part of me. Laurel ended up selling the shop in 2013 after a bug infestation ruined one of her crops. Things got even worse a few months later when she got a letter in the mail from the IRS. They said they were auditing Altermed's tax returns from 2010 and 2011. Ultimately, the IRS found that Altermed's had shorted its taxes by around $400,000, and it was on the hook for another $80,000 in penalties. They said Laurel had either been negligent in filing Altermed's taxes or had intentionally skipped out on them. Laurel was blindsided. I had my taxes professionally prepared. I did not do my own taxes. And, they, and, eat, and so the tax years 2010 and 2011, which is what we were audited and, and billed for uh, retroactively from the IRS, uh, was prepared by two different people uh, each year, and um, neither one of them did or talked about paragraph uh, uh, 280E. 280E is the cannabis industry's boogeyman looming in the tax code. Basically, it says that businesses that traffic in the illegal drugs that are listed on the Controlled Substances Act can't write off the cost of operating. That provision was added in 1982 after a Minneapolis drug dealer named Jeffrey Edmondson tried to write off his expenses on a tax return. We're talking about the cocaine he bought wholesale, a scale, his baggies. Those are the expenses of a drug business, so he argued they should be deducted from his tax bill. And a tax court judge agreed with him. But Ronald Reagan had just become president, and the war on drugs was in high gear. So Congress shut that little loophole real quick and added 280E to the tax code. 280E is all of one sentence. And we can all understand, even non-accountants can understand 280E. It says real clearly, if you sell or traffic any drugs, heroin, pot, whatever, you can't deduct anything on your tax return or have a credit. That's pretty simple. A kindergartner could understand it. So yeah, why is it complex? It's a great question. It is super complex. But on the face of it, it would appear to be very easy. (laughs) That's Andrew Hunziker. He's one of the founders of cannabis accounting company Dope CFO. They handle the books of cannabis operators across the spectrum and teach other accountants how to work with the industry. We see many people doing cannabis accounting wrong. So we see many tax returns where, so for example, 280E says clear as day, you cannot deduct anything on your tax return. 
I've seen many cannabis tax returns where they're deducting all kinds of things in clear violation of 280E. Many accountants unfamiliar with the cannabis industry may not even know about 280E because they've probably never dealt with a business that is trafficking in controlled substances. Unlike a regular business, marijuana companies can't write off their utilities or the cost of their rent or the wages they pay employees. The only thing they can deduct in tax code lingo, is the cost of goods sold. At the most basic level, that's the price the dispensary paid for the products they sell. So a company might bring in a bunch of revenue, but it's also going to pay a ton of bills. And it's not going to get much money back from the government when tax season rolls around. So in the end, that means that there's not a whole lot of profit left. You have to do taxes right, and if you do taxes right, just common sense tells you you're not going to make much money because you're paying the government a punitive level of tax on top of all your other costs to get sold, labor, rent, insurance, all those things. So what does this look like for cannabis businesses? Eric Knutson is the CEO of Keefe Brands, which makes cannabis beverages that are sold all over the country. I bet you didn't know you can have a THC-laced margarita. Yeah, so we, we produce a, a wide variety of uh, different beverages, pretty much. We try, try to say that we produce a beverage for everybody. They've got an orange soda called Orange Kush. Uh, root beer, colas. Of course, a sparkling water. Uh, we have a life pro- Keef Life product that's similar to vitamin water, so a low-calorie, healthier kind of active kind of beverage. And then uh, we have our, our nose line, which is called Keef Shots. And the margarita is called the Kefo-rita. He's got a mojito, too. For him, 280E means he has to personally pay taxes on all the salaries he pays to his employees. What that means technically is basically if I pay a, a sales rep you know, $80,000 over the course of a year, uh, due to the fact that we're in an LLC, uh, I actually pay tax on that entire $80,000 as an individual person. So even though they're paying income tax on that $80,000, uh, the business itself cannot write that 80000 off. It shows up on my tax return as ordinary income, which I'm taxed then at whatever bracket you know I may be in. So for all of our sales, marketing, and distribution employees, um, I take all of their salaries on as personal salaries as well. So I might as well just be gifting them the money. The six-figure tax bills stacked up, to the point where Eric had payment plans with the IRS going back three years. He recently sold his house to pay those off once and for all. At this point, he's accepted that his business is going to pay a heck of a lot more taxes than a regular drink brand. That tax burden has taken its toll. We've struggled over the years, personally definitely struggled, and it's it was a huge piece of my marriage probably dissolving as well you know, the stress and all of that. So there's, there are personal issues that, you know, that this, this 280 issue I've watched, you know, destroy small businesses, many of them. You know, our customers over the years, we've, we sold a lot of mom and pop shops and the 280 issue is, like I said, it's closed up a lot of doors that shouldn't be closed. You know, good business people that were running a successful business in any other business environment. In general, Eric says he's very conservative about the deductions he takes. His tax rate is something like 70%. Plenty of companies can't stomach that kind of tax burden, so many attorneys and accountants are looking for ways to get around the problem. Here's Andrew the accountant again. 
there are ways and methods you can utilize to lower your 2AD tax a little bit, but um, they're difficult to implement. Most are implementing them wrong. And that's why when the IRS is coming, they're winning every single case and the IRS is winning big fees. And um, so that's what we show cannabis CEOs. We're like, look at this case. You do not want this to happen to you. These are not little teeny penalties. They're, these are half million dollar and bigger awards and penalties. People are even going to jail. So it's, it's very important they do this right. For the IRS, it makes total sense that they would pursue cannabis companies under 280E. Benjamin Leff, a tax law professor from American University, explains why. Their job is to raise money through the, the federal income tax. Congress tells them what the law is. Often there are weird laws. You know, I, a lot of the provisions of the federal income tax are advancing policy objectives that, you, that one might disagree with or think lead to perverse results. But Congress is ultimately who chooses what those rules are. It, the, the IRS would be going kind of way out on a limb if they said, you know, this 280E, things have changed. And so this 280E, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Let's just not enforce it. The IRS is all about convincing people to comply with the tax laws voluntarily. So if they told cannabis companies not to worry about this whole clause, it would be sending a weird message to the country. The IRS isn't really in a position to make that assessment, to make a decision, oh, let's evaluate how bad it is to society for people to be selling marijuana and then make our enforcement choices based on that. Because that's that's not their job and they don't have that expertise. Their job is to think about how do we how do we collect the revenue that Congress told us to collect and like how do we dissuade people from uh, or, or encourage people to obey the law. But the marijuana industry hasn't just resigned itself to 280E. Many companies have fought back in court. The most significant cases involved three different California dispensaries. And those companies were all represented by one lawyer. Okay, well, uh, I'm Henry Wykowski, and I'm an attorney for the uh, cannabis industry. I have a small law firm in San Francisco that specializes in representing cannabis entities, and we've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I'm what you would call an OG in the industry. My producer Steve and I met up with Henry at a cannabis conference in San Jose. He's got sort of a celebrity vibe. Everyone knows him. Everybody wants to stop and say hello when he walks by. And he's got a special place in weed history. That's right. In recognition for, uh, for my work, I was allowed to make the first legal purchase of cannabis in the state of California in, well, on January 1st of 2018. At Harborside. Right? At Harborside Health Center, yeah. He's a former Department of Justice prosecutor from the tax division, but he's best known for the more than two decades he's been in private practice in San Francisco. And he spent a lot of that time trying to undo the impact of 280E on the industry. Uh, I think that the way that uh, 280E, the use of 280E against the, uh, the industry came about was that in the early 2000s, when the medical cannabis uh, dispensaries in San Francisco were really starting to catch on, uh, the federal government, of course, tried to slow them down or stop them completely, and they weren't successful. I have no verification of this, but I have a suspicion that somebody got the bright idea that, look, the way we got Al Capone was through taxes, and maybe that's the way that we can get cannabis. 
His first 280E client was a dispensary called CHAMP, or Californians Helping to Alleviate Medical Problems. It was the first time the IRS had tried out 280E on a legal pot business, sending them a bill for nearly $400,000. The judge said that 280E would definitely apply to a medical marijuana business, but Henry scored some points in this case. He convinced the judge that the cannabis businesses should at least be allowed to deduct the cost of the goods they sell. The judge also agreed that the businesses can deduct expenses unrelated to cannabis. So because Champ provided its patients counseling, those expenses were okay. If the perfume counter in Macy's took up 15% of the floor space, under cost accounting, you would allocate 15% of all your general expenses to the perfume counter. They should treat cannabis the same way. So, yes, they were selling cannabis at CHAMP, but they were also providing social welfare programs and hygiene products and counseling and all of that. And that took up space and it incurred expenses. So let's do a cost accounting allocation. But those modest gains didn't last. Henry represented a dispensary called the Vapor Room and its owner, Martin Olive, who was also slapped with a hefty tax bill. The Vapor Room dispensed medical marijuana and offered patients a place to use it. The patients could smoke, watch movies, hang out, and eat pizza. But this time, the tax court wasn't vibing with Henry's perfume counter argument. There's a fundamental difference between CHAMP and the Vapor Room. CHAMP sold its patients a variety of services in addition to the medical marijuana, while Martin's Vapor Room wasn't really selling anything else. The pizza was free. If you're a bookstore instead of a cannabis business, if bookstore A basically has um, you know, a seating area and knowledgeable salespeople and you can come in and pick out a book, and those people will talk to you about it. And while you're talking to them, they give you free coffee and they give you free cookies. Uh, then that bookstore has one line of business, the sale of books. However, if bookstore B has the exact same space, but they charge you for the coffee and they charge you for the cookies, then it has a separate line of business. And the expenses associated with that business should be deductible. So Martin wasn't allowed to deduct any of his expenses. And the circumstances that allowed marijuana businesses to keep some of their deductions got narrower. But the IRS wasn't done winning. Their stance was solidified in another case, where Henry was representing a huge dispensary called Harborside. The, the revenue agent that did the Harborside audit uh, you know, uh, we cooperated in the beginning fully, gave him access to everything. I took him on a tour. We took him into the vault. We showed him where everything was done and all of that. Then he disallows everything under 280E. And I said, what the hell's going on, man? We showed you everything. And he said, listen, when push comes to shove, your client's a drug dealer. And that's all. That's the only way we're going to treat him. Henry tried a new strategy. He pointed out that the tax code says no deductions are allowed from a business that consists of trafficking in controlled substances. And what we argued in Harborside was that if you said the city of New York consists of Manhattan and the Bronx, you would be wrong. It includes Manhattan and the Bronx, but it consists of all five boroughs. 
So Harborside business consisted of selling cannabis, but also providing massages and therapy and selling books and and T-shirts and bongs and rolling papers. And therefore, uh, 280E should only apply if all you do is sell cannabis. But because you do these other things, your business includes cannabis, but it consists of everything. But the tax court didn't buy it. In fact, the court reeled in Champ, finding that the T-shirts and magazines Harborside sold made up such a small part of its business compared to the pot that it didn't really count for anything. Remember Laurel Alterman and her husband, Bill? They hired Henry, too. To Laurel and Bill, it felt like the IRS had pulled out all the stops to go after them. The IRS flew in witnesses and experts from all over the country for their trial. It was brutal. It was brutal. You would think that this was Al Capone. I mean, this is this, you know, woman who's getting older and, you know, trying to do it right and, you know, really wasn't very lucrative. Uh, It wasn't a big dispensary. And you would think that this was just the case of the century. Over the course of their week-long trial, Laurel spent many hours on the stand, describing how she relied on accountants to handle Altermed's books. By that time, it's 2015, and we're talking five years have passed. Yes. So the memory yeah. is there. I, so. I don't even have that much of a memory. But, but the books are records. You know, we brought big, loosely folders of our daily... Uh, and she would, she would get on our case because, because this... This um, didn't um, agree with that page. Or, you know, it was like, give me a break. I'm not an accountant, you know. Uh, I think that anybody that was in the courtroom and heard Laurel Alterman testify uh, could not have come away believing that she wasn't acting in good faith. I mean, even some of the people from the IRS came up to us after the trial and said, you know, we should have settled this case. This wasn't the right case for us to bring. And yet the judge came out squarely on their side. It was very disappointing. Um, yeah, uh, I, I mean, that, that, I feel bad about that case. Laurel and Bill got their first letter from the IRS in 2013. And in March, they got their final bill. What's the date? Yeah, 3-5-2019, 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here we go. So these are them. These are the, these are the ones that, that... This is what came in the mail? Yeah. 239 34 4 2010. Yeah, that was the, the biggest year that we ever had. And then two, 223 599 for 2011. Yeah. It's definitely a chunk of change. It's a chunk of change. So there goes. To pay the IRS. Laurel and Bill have refinanced their house, which has left them with higher mortgage payments and a higher interest rate. 
Bill is selling the building that housed his business, and he's working from home instead. Laurel liquidated the IRA she had for a retirement account. And it's hard to find a job she can do at her age. So she's driving Uber and Lyft when she can to supplement their social security. As Laurel put it, they're scrambling. They even sold the camper they planned to use in their retirement. Yeah, and we had it a year. And it was great. And we went all around last summer and did stuff. And, and you know, planning that that's what we would do. But, you know, that's changed. Yeah, after you, after you sit with a $460,000 bill that is just hanging there for a while, you go into denial. You, you, you be, believe that, well, gosh, they waited for five years or four years. Maybe they'll wait forever. And they didn't. Congress is considering a few different pieces of legislation that could curtail 280E's power against legal cannabis. But until one of those bills becomes a law, the IRS is going to continue enforcing it. Now, the IRS did not respond to questions about its use of 280E or Laurel's case. But we do have an explanation of the IRS's stance from a case that went before the Tenth Circuit earlier this year. A judge questioned whether it was appropriate to use 280E against businesses that are legal in their home states. Department of Justice Attorney Francesca Ugolini said it was. You express a view that many taxpayers have expressed. Other, there are other members of Congress who have introduced bills to limit the effect of 280E on state-licensed marijuana businesses, recognizing that there are these federalism issues. So far, none of those bills have advanced to change the law. And at the end of the day, the law is what it is. Congress makes the federal tax laws. 280E applies across the board to any business that involves, uh, that consists of the trafficking in controlled substances, has whether I, it's legal have, have under state. Have taken a position on those congressional bills, or have you had occasion to do so? I don't know if the Department of Treasury has. The Department of Justice doesn't get involved in those types of things. We enforce the laws that exist. And this law has been on the books, I believe, since the 80s. So the, the businesses in Colorado and California and some of these other states that, you know, have decided to go into this business are, should be, you know, are or at least should be fully aware of the tax implications of deciding to enter that type of business. Given the, As for Laurel, she still doesn't understand why a tax judge found she purposefully ignored 280E. Look at this. You know, they were being prosecuted, or we were prosecuted and, and uh, penalized because it's illegal. It's illegal. Any way you slice it and dice it. So. And until that changes, Henry sees no sign the IRS will slow down. Uh, I, I don't think the IRS is going to let go. Uh, I, I, I don't understand their position. Um, Congress could change it, but um, I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. And it's unfortunate. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Law360 Explores Legalization. 
This episode, and this entire series in fact, was written and reported by Diana Novak-Jones. Production and sound design came from me, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, our fearless leader really in this whole adventure, is Amber McKinney. Many others at Law360 also helped make this show possible, including Ann Erda, Ian Toms, and Ned Beeson, who lent us their time and their ears to make sure we were on the right track. We'd also like to give a big thank you to the National Cannabis Industry Association, which graciously provided us space at its annual conference to conduct many of these interviews. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner, Elephant, Unicorn Heads, and Norma Rockwell. If you want to know more about the show, check out our website at law360.com explores. And if you liked the episode today, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to hear the rest of the series. And please leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we want as many people to listen as possible. Thanks.